Thank you, Barbara, for that very cheery reading this morning. That was lovely, lovely. How are you guys? Hanging in there? All right, if you got a Bible, break it out. Let's go to Nehemiah chapter 5. We're going to continue our study that we've been at for about a month now, looking at God's handbook on leadership. That's what Nehemiah is. It's got lots of purposes. We talked about that last week, but Nehemiah is all about leadership. If you're just joining us, we are in chapter 5, and we've seen over the last you know, several weeks a whole bunch of leadership principles at work. Nehemiah is concerned about a people and a place, or a project, if you will, right? There is a problem that needs to be solved. In this case, it's a broken down wall that leaves the people of Jerusalem vulnerable. The problem is that the primary problem comes with a whole pile of secondary problems. It's not just the wall, but there's all these things going on all around it. We saw last week in chapter four that like the problems in really chapter four, just the hits start coming rapid fire. But unfortunately for Nehemiah and unfortunately for us, the problems are not contained in chapter four. They continue in chapter five and chapter six. And in fact, they were there all along in chapters one, two, and three. And I suspect that God is focusing on problems in this treatise on leadership, all the problems that Nehemiah faced while building the wall, because relentless trouble is always the cost of leadership. That's what you signed up for. Chapter five, however, I think is about a different sort of a problem rather than being just one more example, right? There's a whole bunch of things. We could just go say, yeah, it's hard, it's hard, it's hard, it's hard, it's hard. But I think chapter five is set aside in a particular way because there's something he wants us to understand. Um, uh, something, a, a peculiar fact, a pitfall of leadership that we should be aware of. So bear with me, we'll try to unpack it. I wonder if you have ever noticed that leaders tend to have more uh, resources, more authority than those that they lead. And because wealth and power are so delicious to most people, particularly to those that already have them, the leaders often use their wealth and power to maintain and extend their wealth and power rather than to use them to serve those that they're leading. Have you ever noticed that be the case? Over and over and over again, right? Rather than seeing all that we have as something that we can strategically give away in the service of others, leaders have a very strong incentive to use them to, to just further entrench their ability to enjoy themselves, which basically means that the pervasive love of self that lives in the heart of everyone often interferes with good leadership. I want you to just bear that in mind as you watch things play out in Nehemiah 5. There is this fundamental trait of humanity. And I want you to see in particular, this is, we're going to do this in a couple of sections. I want, we're going to walk through the first half of chapter 5. We're just going to follow the story. What's going on? Try to peer into it and understand what's happening, why it's happening, what are the motives in people's hearts that, that's driving us through. But I want you to see the first half of chapter 5 as the foil against which we're going to really understand the, the second half. The second half is what I, I want to get to. But we got to get to it through the lens of the first half, okay? So bear with me here. The good stuff's coming at the end. Nehemiah 5. We're going to look at verse 1. Nehemiah has the, here's the setup here is that he has to deal with three distinct but related issues, okay? Just kind of pay attention to what these are. Nehemiah 5, verse 1. Now, the men and their wives, that's the workers, that's who we're talking about. The men and their wives raised a great outcry against their Jewish brothers. Some were saying, we and our sons and daughters are numerous, in order for us to eat and stay alive, we must get grain. Others were saying, verse three, the second problem, we're mortgaging our fields, our vineyards, 
and our homes to get grain during the famine. And then third and finally, still others were saying, we've had to borrow money to pay the king's tax on our fields and vineyards. Although we are of the same flesh and blood as our countrymen, and though our sons are as good as theirs, yet we have to subject our sons and daughters to slavery. Some of our daughters have already been enslaved, but we are powerless because our fields and our vineyards belong to others. Okay, what unifies the issues here? All three of these things kind of are, you know, members of a set. What's the issue? It's going down. What is it? No money. It's all economic, right? The whole, you catch that, right? This, it's, the unifying theme here is poverty, economic, instability, vulnerability they have due to, due to financial issues. In verses one and two, you're gonna see the poor get taken advantage of because of course they are, right? It's easy to take advantage of the poor. They don't have enough to eat. There's been a famine, which has raised the cost of grain. And with large families, there's simply not enough to go around. They're just broke. They can't feed their kids. And so in verse three, they attempt to solve that problem and thereby create another problem, right? In the immediate term, they're like, well, we just need cash and we need it now. So they mortgage their fields. They mortgage their vineyards, right? That makes sense because they instantly have money. They can instantly buy food to feed their hungry family. But it leaves them in a much weaker position long-term because what they mortgaged away to get food for the moment is their capacity to make food for the next moment, right? We're good this month, but now they've taken on debt and there's, not, there's no further opportunity. Not only is it, not only they lost their field, but they're paying interest, probably high interest based on the language of usury here. And this high interest debt is gonna prevent them from flourishing in the future months to come, right? But it's in verse four at the third problem that the catastrophe really kind of like is unpacked here, okay? That's where the first and the second problems, or perhaps you could say the unwise solutions that they've come up with for the first and second problems become really costly. Because not only can they not buy food for, them, for their families, but they also can't pay their taxes. And as you may have noticed, the taxes have got to be paid. And so, in their desperation, what do they do? What's their last desperate action here? Say it louder. What is it? They sell their kids. They sell their children into slavery. This is a pretty radical step, right? Now, we can make the case that this isn't the same as chattel slavery in America's history, and that is true. It's not quite so awful as that, but it's still pretty bad, right? These families are so impoverished that they are conscripting their kids into indentured servitude. So just imagine for a moment that there is a wealthy leader somewhere approximate to you and you are just getting by. You're not, you're actually not getting by. You do not have the resources you need for your basic needs for yourself, your family. You've already mortgaged to them your fields and your vineyards, your means of production. And that of course has eradicated your future capacity to earn any money and provide for your families. But because your situation was so desperate, so you're in such a, such a miserable plight, and because you had no negotiating power in that interaction, that not only have they mortgaged your fields, but they've done so at a confiscatory rate. The interest you're paying is just too much. It was a terrible deal, but you took the deal because you had no alternative, right? 
This is, poverty is not just about money. Poverty is about opportunities. And like they had no choice. They do this or they do nothing. And now that you have nothing left to mortgage, but you still need money, he makes you an offer on your daughter and your son. Not a very good offer, but it is an offer. And because you have no options, well, I guess you have two, right? Your options are to accept his offer or to starve and watch your children starve. You take the deal. That's what's going on here. This guy gets control. He gets ownership of your son or daughter. Not forever. We don't want to be ridiculous about this. Probably just for like seven years. But what's seven years in the life of a child? And in exchange, he will feed them, presuming they work hard, and he'll give you a little something besides. Can you imagine, like in your life, can you imagine being in a circumstance so desperate that you sell your kids? Now, the whole thing's terrible, right? Everything about this is just bad, 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 bad. But there's one factor that completely pushes Nehemiah over the edge. What is it? What's, I think it's in verse five. What is the thing that just drives Nehemiah? Yeah, verse five. What, what just drives Nehemiah out of his mind about this? Who are the lenders? Who are the people that are doing this to them? Hebrews, Jews, their own people, right? Nehemiah flips out. It is not these hateful foreign powers that are taking everything from us. It's our, it's our countrymen. And so Nehemiah flips out. Look at 5.6. It says, when I heard their outcry and these charges, I was very angry. Now let me ask you something. Is it a sin to be angry? No. I mean, but usually it kind of doesn't go well. Have you noticed this, right? At least not for me. Anger is not always a sin. There is a place for anger. Jesus got angry enough to make a whip out of cords and drive the people from the temple. The Father, who is holiness itself, is pictured as having wrath that burns against dreadful things. So anger is not always a sin. But when sinners are the ones getting angry, it almost always goes awry. Surely you've seen this in life, right? Most human beings myself included, manage anger poorly. In my case, usually anger makes me stupid. Have you noticed that? Yeah. About yourself? <laughs> Watch it, right? I need you in my office on Monday, Steve. <laughs> but every once in a while, there's this unicorn moment where a sinner's anger prompts him to a righteous action, right? This is one of those things. And Nehemiah is so ticked. Look at what he says here, verse six. When I heard their outcry and these charges, I was very angry. I pondered them in my mind and then accused the nobles and officials. And I told them, you're exacting usury from your own countrymen. That means interest, high interest. So I called together a large meeting to deal with them. And I said, as far as possible, we have bought back our Jewish brothers who were sold to the Gentiles. And now you are selling your brothers only for them to be sold back to us. They kept quiet because they could find nothing to say. So I continued, what you're doing is not right. Shouldn't you walk in the fear of our God to avoid the reproach of our Gentile enemies? I and my brothers and my men are also lending people money and grain. So that's interesting. Hang on, it's not a problem to make a loan, so hang on. But let the exacting of usury stop. Give back to them immediately their fields, vineyards, olive groves, and houses. And also the usury you're charging them, the hundredth part, the percentages of the money, the grain, the new wine, and the oil. 
We will give it back, they said, and we will not demand anything more from them. We will do as you say. Okay, so Nehemiah is saying, listen, you want to lend them stuff to help them through this moment, this famine? Great, do it. I'm doing it, we're doing it, that's great. But you must do this to give them an advantage, not to take advantage of them. Knock it off, right? These are your people. We're on the same team. You're treating them worse than the Gentiles do. Okay, now, Nehemiah is a great leader. Why is he here? He's building a wall, right? But the wall has always been about a people and about a place. It's always got both. And once again, he's gonna stop the work on the wall because the people are suffering, right? He's gonna interrupt his, he's got a million things to do, I'm sure, but he's gonna put all that aside and come over here and address the thing because people matter. And for leaders, the people have to happen. Now watch what he does, right? He gets in their face, he advocates for his people, but he's still a good businessman as he does so. In verse 11, he says, I want you to do it today. No, there's no, no time for games. Stop screwing around. No delay. I want you to fix it now. And then he gets it in writing. Look at what happens in verse 12. He says, then I summoned the priests and I made the nobles and the officials take an oath to do what they had promised. I also shook out the folds of my robe and I said, in this way, may God shake out of his house and possessions every man who does not keep this promise. So may such a man be shaken out and emptied. He does not want any wiggle room in this whole thing, right? I don't want anybody coming back to me. Oh, well, we didn't really say we were gonna do that. Or we said, da, da, da. So he brings them all together. He gets the priests and he, and he basically adds a layer of like divine solemnity to this whole thing. Let there be no mistake. It stops, it stops now. I want witnesses. I want there to be hanging over you the very threat of God. And then he does this weird little thing where he like acts out this thing. And basically he, he puts on this little short drama as a pre-depiction of the curse that he's gonna call down on them if they welch out on the terms of the deal. Okay, Nehemiah is not messing around with this, right? Do you remember President Reagan's trust but verify? Remember that? That's this. He's like, all right, let's, let's make sure that you keep to the terms of the deal. Okay, now that's all first half. That's what's been going down. Nehemiah's mad. He's righteous in his anger and he's gonna intervene for his people. First half, got it clear? Okay, here's where we're going for the second half though. There's a problem, of course, that's usury. The people are, you know, in, being enslaved. The rich are taking advantage of them. So Nehemiah accepts it. All backdrop for the second half. Do you remember last week when I said that all scripture points us to Christ? The whole thing is constantly, every book, the whole thing is doing this. It is pointing us to him. It's the, the purpose of scripture is to reveal our brokenness and our badness. It reveals our fallenness, but it also reveals God's solution to it. This happens over and over again across the board. And if you will begin to notice what God is doing, you, if you notice the sin and the suffering of people in the Bible, and if you will notice God's engagement with that sin and suffering, if you'll see that, you will begin to see patterns that point to Jesus. This happens score, dozens of times, scores of times, hundreds of times. God is constantly foreshadowing, he's pointing to, he's anticipating, he's hinting at his plan to redeem. Not just the fact of redemption, but the means of redemption. He's constantly suggesting to us, someone is coming. A rescuer is on the way to a broken people who have been compromised by their own failings and the failings of others, God is going to send a hero. Now it's very tempting to read a book like Nehemiah and just see it as a template for us. 
Like, I got it, I got it, I got it. Just go be like Nehemiah, right? We could, we could do that. It's tempting to believe that Nehemiah points to me, foreshadows me, the great leader. Perhaps when you read it, you think he points to you, the great leader. We have a tendency to cast ourselves in the role of hero in any story that we read. We identify with the protagonist, and we could identify pretty quickly with Nehemiah in this one. And we assume that we are the ones who must do something heroic. I am the one who must be great like he is. But you guys, I want you to just set that aside for a second and ponder the possibility this isn't a story that's about you. What if it doesn't point to you? What if it's not chiefly about how you need to rescue the poor from their oppressors, but what if it's meant to give you hope that you can be rescued from yours? What if you and I are more like the poor in this story than we are like Nehemiah? One of the early steps when we come to reading the scriptures should be, I think, the way that what the Spirit wants us to do, one early step, is to recognize, to peer into, and to see the sin and the suffering. Because the locus of sin and suffering is where we find ourselves. We are far more like they than we are like the heroes. And once we've done that, then it's really good to stop and to notice, okay, what does God do? Where does he solve this particular problem of sin and suffering in this instance? Because that is where you're most likely to discover what's being revealed about Jesus. So if Nehemiah is a book about leadership, and it is, then it would make sense that it would be a book about a great leader, and it is. But it shouldn't surprise us at all that this leader, like all of the other leaders throughout this, the Bible's full of great men and women who have great influence. And each one of them in some way is revealing some facet of the jewel that is Jesus. They all point to him. So as we read the second half of Nehemiah 5, as we watch this, just suppress the assumption to assume that you're taking your marching orders from him, that it's all about you. And instead, notice as Nehemiah solves the problem, he does so in ways that are shockingly similar to the way that Jesus lived his life. That Nehemiah is a template that prepares us for what the Christ would come and be and do, okay? So check it out. In Nehemiah 5, we'll start at verse 14. It says, Moreover, from the 20th year of King Artaxerxes, when I was appointed to be their governor in the land of Judah until the 32nd year, 12 years, neither I nor my brothers ate the food allotted to the governor. But the earlier governors, those preceding me, placed a heavy burden on the people and took 40 shekels of silver from them in addition to the food and wine. And their assistants also lorded it over the people. Does that phrase jump out to you at all? I don't know if that, that phrase is reminiscent to you. Jesus said something shockingly like it. He said this. He said, you know that the rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them. And their high officials exercise authority over them. Not so with you. Instead, whoever wants to become great among you must be your servant. And whoever wants to be first must be your slave. Just as the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve. And to give his life as a ransom for many. Back to Nehemiah, look at 5.17. Furthermore, 150 Jews and officials ate at my table as well as those who came to us from the surrounding nations. Each day an ox, six choice sheep, some poultry were prepared for me and every 10 days an abundant supply of wine of all kinds. In spite of all of this, I never demanded the food allotted to the governor because the demands were heavy on these people. 
What he's saying is all of the blessings and all the riches, all the things that I had the right to obtain for myself, I didn't keep it for myself because it came to me on the way to somebody else. My wealth and my power were not for my pleasure, but for the service of those that have been called to lead, right? Nehemiah as a book is about a group of, we've said it, it's about leadership. It's about a wall. Yeah, 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 all that's true. But it's also, it's about a group of people who are suffering. They're vulnerable, right? Because this wall is down, they're being taken advantage of. And all these other problems that have come into their lives and they are being abused. They are poor. And to them comes someone who will be for them the champion that they need. He's gonna risk his life and his reputation. He's gonna spend his wealth and he's gonna enter into their suffering. And he will not take anything for himself, but he's gonna give it all away, right? Nehemiah is coming to rescue the people. Centuries later, Paul is gonna say this of Jesus. He will say, though he was rich, for your sake he became poor so that you, through his poverty, might become rich. Because Nehemiah, for all his glory in building the wall, is chiefly and first an anticipation of the Messiah. He was just one more instance in the scores of instances throughout the scriptures of how God is saying, this is how I will rescue you because you are just like them. I wonder, if you're, are you aware of your own poverty? Is that a shame to you? Or can you embrace it? Now, it might be financial or economic, right? There's a lack of opportunity in your life or an abundance of vulnerability. That's a thing. Or maybe, and perhaps in this context, it might be more likely that it's a spiritual poverty. It might be that your life is more characterized by Benjamins than by obedience, more by money than morality, more by currency than courage. But one way or another, we are all poor, spiritually, if not economically, and many other ways besides. And we need a rescuer. Would anyone come to step into our vulnerability? You guys, just like Nehemiah forsook his privilege for the people of Jerusalem, Jesus forsook his everything for you. And if you will see that he became poor so that you could become rich, that the Son of Man served you and gave himself for you, not only will you be free, but you'll be made rich. You will possess all things. And you will have a new ability to spend all that he has given to you, not to lord it over others, but to serve them. And that is what he is doing in the world. And it really is true that we are called to love, but we love because he first loved us. And it's really true that we are called to forgive, but the only reason that we can forgive is because he forgave us. And we are really called to lead others in love and service, but you just can't do it unless you have a rich experience that that's how Jesus leads you. If you will see and observe and far more powerfully experience Jesus eschewing all of the goodness that he deserves so that you can enjoy the goodness that you don't deserve, if that were to happen and you were to see it, then I think it would change the way you lead others, the way that you lead your office, your practice, your things that God has put in front of you, right? Rather than spending your wealth and your power for the advantage of yourself, like the guys do in the first half of Nehemiah 5, you might find yourself spending your wealth and your power for the good of others, like Nehemiah does and like Jesus does. 
But I'll tell you, if you don't know that you received it, if you haven't experienced that yourself, then it just you'll never be able to give it away. So this morning, as we open up the rail, I just want to invite you, maybe you want to just take a moment and you want to reflect. Ask the question, does your leadership reflect, your leadership of others reflect the way that Jesus leads you? Have you passed along what you have received? Where is it? And the answer to that, by the way, is no, you don't, okay? And this is just, so it's okay, right? Where is it that you have been willing to spend your power and your wealth to advantage yourself over others instead of considering others' needs as more important than your own? Now, it might be hard. It might be hard to do that. Well, it is hard to do that, but it might be hard to do that, harder, because you have forgotten that Jesus, being in the very nature God, didn't consider equality with God something to be, something to be grasped, but he made himself nothing, taking on the very nature of a servant, being found in human likeness, being found in the appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to death, even death on a cross. And perhaps, maybe this morning, you wanna come forward and tell him that, talk about that. Is there some area that you need to repent of? And if so, the rails are open. Now, this front rail here is for you to be alone with Jesus. The edge rails will be folks that are here to process through something with you and to pray with you. And it might very well be there's something else. It has nothing to do with Nehemiah. It has nothing to do with leadership, but it is just dragging you down and you just need a space. You need to create a little bit of room for you to get some time with Jesus. You can do that anytime and anywhere, but you can also do it right now. And we invite you to come and to be with him because he loves you. And you might need just a fresh reminder of his grace and his mercy and his tenderness toward you. And I hope that this time might be helpful to you that, uh, to that end. So Lord Jesus, we pray to you. We love you. We lift you up. Lord, our favorite thing about you is not the example of your love. There are plenty of examples of love and generosity and kindness, but those don't change us. It's not your example. It's the experience. It's not that you love, but it's that you love me. That's where the transformation lies. And so I pray that by your spirit, you might open up to us in a fresh way, a new way, the depth of your kindness to us, to this one, to that one, to that one. It would go past, past example and do experience. And you'd enable us to love the way you'd like us to. Thanks for loving us. Amen.